Greetings. My name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 25 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 25, we are going to be talking about several very interesting questions that came in from the IQ at cbqz.org email address. We're going to start off, though, by talking about some announcements. Uh, in fact, our district meet is coming up, so we've got some stuff to talk about there. Uh, and then, of course, we're going to proceed through chapters four and five on our chapter review in prep for the quiz meet that is coming up just in an, uh, just a handful of days. And we want to talk about PNW individual and team scoring structures and then some miscellaneous uh, uh, topics around multiple answers and a few other things. But before we dive too far into some of the uh, chapter review and questions about stuff and things, I wanted to talk about an announcements. Uh, so this, the announcements that are coming up, uh, the big one, of course, is that the district meet, uh, meet number one, the first official meet, I said it was going to be in a few days. I'm, I'm totally wrong. It's actually starting tomorrow, uh, which is very exciting. We're recording Thursday uh, evening right now, and the quiz meet starts uh, tomorrow, Friday uh, in, in the evening. Uh, and that is very exciting. We, it was great to see everybody at the scramble meet, but this is our first district meet where it actually, uh, things start to matter and, and, uh, we start to have a lot of uh, fun as we did during scramble, but this time it counts. Uh, so beyond that, all of the schedule and roster information has been distributed. Uh, we've got, we're going to be running four rooms. Uh, we've got four, well, we actually have five quiz masters. I'm going to end up being roaming. Uh, Scott's going to hang out in room one and we've got quiz masters in two, three, and four, but then I'm going to jump in and kind of give people breaks along the way. And we're, a lot of that is sort of some strategy around the fact, you know, we're going to be using CBQZ in all of the rooms and tracking stats and so forth. And so I just wanted to be kind of available at the beginning of the meet in case anything goes wrong, just to make sure that we can solve it really quickly. But otherwise, we're going to go in and give Quizmasters, uh, or I'm going to give Quizmasters a break. Uh, from time to time, which is going to be great for them so that, you know, we can sort of combat quiz master fatigue along the way. Uh, so, Scott, what other kind of announcements do you want to talk about in terms of the meet coming up? So we will have a meeting of the program leaders and quiz masters, and that will happen on Saturday morning, right as worship ends and before devotions begins. Uh, and we'll meet in room four, which is right off the sanctuary, and we should have a pretty quick meeting few things that I want to discuss. And then I think that's my only other announcement. I'm looking forward to the meet tomorrow. Sounds cool. So when do when does registration start and when does quizzing start on Friday? So we don't really do registration anymore because there's really no point to it. Um, and so I think, let me see, I've totally forgotten the timing of everything, but I believe registration starts at six or so. Um, and then announcements right around seven. And quizzing starts at 7.05. I mean, 7.20. 7.20. So, Hopefully at 7.20. So I, I do put registration on there starting at 6.15. Um, there used to be registration back in the day where you would check in and buy lunch tickets and get maps of the church and such. But most of that either get, gets disseminated beforehand or doesn't need to happen. So we don't have a formal registration because um, you should have already checked in. Very cool. And then uh, how late do we run? We're going to be running pretty late. I think the last quiz is like 9.30, 10 o'clock, something like that. Yeah, the last quiz on Friday night starts at 9.40 uh, and ends at 10 p.m. 
and that's scheduled to end at 10 p.m. <laughs> right. Some are a little bit earlier and a little bit later, depending upon how the evening goes. And then Saturday morning, what time are, is, are, is everybody uh, meeting back again? So worship starts at 8.30, so make sure you are at the church by 8.30, and we'll have worship and devotions, and quizzing will start at 9.20. Very cool. So this is going to be at uh, EBC, which is Eastridge Baptist Church, is that right? Yep, that is Eastridge Baptist in Kent. So don't confuse EBC with ABC, although if you do, you won't be too far away. Very cool, very cool. Two very cool churches very near each other, so that'll be very exciting. Um any other sort of things we want to talk about about EBC before we move on? I don't believe... Oh, just a reminder that there's no lunch provided on Saturday, so be prepared to get lunch for yourself on Saturday. Lots of options in the area, so that shouldn't be too difficult for most folks. Uh, and there is no you know, coaches meeting during the lunch period time, so it, there should be plenty of time for folks to uh, run out to a nearby place, grab some food. Uh, without too much of a rush and get back in time for quizzing uh, to start right after. Yep, and as soon as you're done with your prelims, you can take... No, no, ignore that. So once prelims are done, we're going to have a short break while our semis schedule gets calculated, and then we're going to do two sessions of semifinals and constellations before lunch. So eight total quizzes will happen after prelims but before lunch. All right, very cool. All right, well, with that, why don't we move into our Chapter 4 and 5 chapter review. Uh, so these are the last two chapters that are getting included right before tomorrow's meet. We're going to be uh, quizzing over Chapters 1 through 5 in equal distribution uh, across those five chapters based on the questions that are generated from the, that material. So that being said, let's, uh, let's dive a bit into chapters four and five. And I mean, the one thing that I'll note about chapter four that, I mean, the very first thing that kind of jumps out at me is it's 54 verses, which is a fair number of verses. Uh, there's, uh, some interesting stuff in there in terms of a finish this, uh, finish this in the next, uh, from 13 and 14. Stuff to keep in mind there. Some key verses a little bit later on in 34, 35, 36, 38, and so on. But there's really not a ton of key verses here. Um, there's kind of a general smattering of unique words, but there does tend to, uh, generally on average, but there is a weird above average section specifically in verses 35, 36, 37, 38. You've got quite a number of unique words that are there. Now, of course, it helps that 35, 36, and 38 are uh, key verses, uh, but you've got some unique words in those key verses, so just be uh, be careful about that sort of thing. Uh, Scott, what are, your, what are your thoughts? So my thoughts are going to be very similar to all the previous chapters that we've done this year and in previous years, and it's making me think that I could make a worksheet that, if quizzers want to, they can complete as they... Um, arrive at each new chapter, and it might be an easy way to get them in the material. So I might noodle on that and send a draft around to some other um, coaches and quizzers and maybe have a worksheet to help you guys out as you start studying. But I like to just get a feel for the chapter. So chapter four, 54 verses, it's a lot of verses. Um, so if you're studying, if you're planning on memorizing the whole chapter and jumping on chapter verse reference questions or quote questions, it's helpful to know that there are 54 verses that has an impact on how fast you're going to want to jump if you hear a question of that type from this chapter. There is, as Griffin said, not a whole lot of key verses, but it's nice to eyeball those, see where they are, see what 
if there are specific types. I, I do see a finish this, and I see a finish this in the next. Uh, and I don't see any finish these two, quote these two in this chapter. But it'll be helpful to note those very special types, like finish this, finish this, and finish this, and the next. There are definitely ways you can study and prepare to give yourself an advantage. It's also good to look for um, proper nouns, so people and places. You know, Jesus in verse 1, and Galilee in verse 3, and Samaria and Sychar in verse 5, Jacob in verse 6, Samaritan woman in verse 7, um, and then down in 45, there's Galilee, Galileans, 46, Cana. And just kind of get a, get a sense for those names and places, because those are great bases for a question. Um, so it's good to familiar, familiarize yourself with those. While you're doing that, you can see if any names are high, hard to pronounce. So in verse 5, Sychar or Sychar or Sitcher or Sicker, like those are all ways that, that that word could potentially be pronounced. So be prepared for that. Let's see what else. There's a good mix of all levels of uniqueness. So there's unique words scattered throughout the chapter, chapter unique words scattered throughout the chapter, as well as unique phrases scattered throughout the chapter. There's no, I guess, um, uniqueness wastelands, as I, I tend to think of it. So it just helps if you're going to be a reference quizzer to read through it and say, are there pockets that are slightly less unique that can be the basis for a reference question? Let's see if I can see one right now. Um, verse 23, a time is coming. What is coming? That's probably going to be a reference question of some type. They are the kind of worshipers. They are what? That's something that sticks out to me. Um, verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. He had to what? That, that sticks out as well. So just get a sense for the length of the chapter, where the key verses are, and what types they are, unique words, and people and places. I think those are all good good things to familiarize, familiarize yourself with as you move through the chapter. Do you have any more thoughts on chapter four, Griffin, before we jump to chapter five? Nothing specific to four, but one of the things that I, I, I do want to remind folks is when they're, re well, not reviewing, but when you're, when you're first encountering a chapter, one of the other things that might be useful is to look for ands and ors uh, as sort of a maybe good places to look for possible multiple answer questions. You're not going to get out all of them. There's, there's quite a bit more that can be written from, from just the ands and the ors, but usually the ands and the ors are just a nice kind of telltale sign that there's probably going to be a multiple answer that can get uh, brought out from that particular uh, location. So, I mean, if you're specializing in, in multiple answers, you have to do a lot more work than just that. But uh, for the general case, uh, just generally preparing, it might be useful to glance over and just kind of mentally note where those things are and kind of imagine what kind of a multiple answer question you might be able to, to hear from verses that have an and and or in them. Yeah, it's it's fun to look for those little consistent ands and ors that are going to be um, possibilities for multiple answer questions. So looking at chapter... Looking at chapter 5, uh, it is also a pretty long chapter, 47 verses. I do see a finish this. I do see some quote these two slash finish these twos. Uh, so th that would be a more specialized type even of key verses. So note how those begin and note the verse numbers. You might find a way that you can gain an advantage in your jumping speeds. There's some quite unique verses right up at the top. Um, talking about Jewish festivals and the sheep 
near the Sheep Gate, um, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. There's just so much basis right there for interrogative questions. So be prepared for that. Um, be prepared for those those pronunciations like Aramaic or Bethesda. The rest of the chapter looks pretty pretty benign, pretty easy to pronounce most of that stuff. But this chapter as a whole kind of looks a little bit less unique than chapter four. So there might be a lot more times um, that reference questions can be written. I'm looking right at verses 24 and 25, very truly I tell you, is how both of them start. And actually those are quote onlys, which is never is not specified by the quizmaster. The quizmaster doesn't say that this is a quote only. The quizmaster just says this is a quote question. But you can see right off the bat why those have to be quote questions because they have the same first five words as each other. So they would be invalid as a finish the verse. But when you see those similarities, be prepared for a chapter and verse reference question on them. And just see if there are other words that appear many times in this chapter. I see... Like testify in verse 31 has no coloring. So I would want to look around the chapter and see where that word occurs other places. In verse 41, glory has no color, except has no color. So maybe look around and see where those occur elsewhere. And one thing we haven't talked about much because it wasn't a type that I studied much, but that situation question. So as you're reading through a chapter, get a sense for um, the quotations and things that are being said. Looking at verse 7... We have one of those quotations that is broken up. So, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Well, if you're just reading the material, you'll read it in that order. But remember, if that quotation is being read to you, it will be, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. So this is the only time that material that is not right next to each other is read as right next to each other by the quiz master. So it'll be very important for the quizzer to read this as the quotation removing that part that's not part of the quotation, the invalid replied, so that your mind is familiar with, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. So if you want to jump on situation questions, be prepared for that sequence of words, even though it's not verbatim from this verse. And those are some of my initial thoughts on chapter five. Well, you've pretty much covered everything I was going to talk about. I was actually going to talk about, <laughs> I was specifically going to talk about verse seven. I was going to talk about two and three with all of the key words that are there. Uh, I was actually going to talk about 24 and 25, but I think you pretty much covered all of that stuff. One thing to note that is kind of interesting, uh, there is no verse four. So you don't have to worry about, you know, jumping on a chapter verse reference from chapter five, verse four, because it doesn't exist. Uh, there's an interesting, I, I don't know. I find it fascinating uh, history around why there is no verse four, uh, it, you know, in terms of uh, trying to have ever more accurate uh, translations of the Bible. Uh, we've come to a point of saying, yeah, verse four potentially is non-canonical. And so we'll leave it out when earlier translations, much, much earlier translations uh, had a verse four or something that became marked as verse four. So there's a very, there's a very, very interesting history behind how that happens uh, and how translations over the centuries, uh, millennia even, uh, alter and, and shape and so forth uh, and end up getting into these, uh, getting us into these weird situations where, yeah, you know, we don't really have a verse four, at least in the NIV, uh, NIV, other translations, uh, some other translations, modern translations actually include uh, verse four. So it's kind of fascinating to see how that works. I'm also looking at verse seven for another reason. My eyes always gravitate towards those unique words. And so I see the word stirred 
when the water is stirred. And what is stirred is a very good interrogative question, but it is, um, it starts with the interrogative word, which makes it more difficult. But oftentimes, interrogatives that start with the W word have a unique word, decently quick. Uh, maybe not always on the second syllable, but sometimes by the third or fourth syllable. But if you're jumping at a decent speed, so in that three to four syllable range, you may not get the whole unique word. And so knowing like is stirred, the way that is ends is with an S and stirred starts with an S. And so as a quiz master, it's very easy to read that kind of flowing together. What is stirred? Um, and so if you jump as a quizzer and it just, the timing feels weird about where you jumped, maybe, I mean, there are times where it's because the quiz master was starting that stirred, but it just sounded like the end of the is. And so a situation like this where it's what is stirred, what interrogatives are much rarer than who interrogatives, and then you have that keyword after the verb is um, with the same letter in the middle there is kind of a interesting situation. Like I expect to see what is stirred, and it's not unreasonable to think that a quizzer jumps right after the what is. Yeah. Well, I don't really have anything else on Chapter 5. Um, Scott, do you have any other thoughts before we move on? I don't think so. So let's move to a question that was emailed in. Uh, Andrew emailed in about situation questions and was talking about how we have about whom was it said questions and was wondering if we could add another situation, which would be about what was it? Because there are cases where um, we're not talking about a person. We're not talking about Jesus or Peter or the father. We're talking about Galilee or a lake or a jar, and about whom was it said would not be a valid way to ask those questions, but about what would make sense. But, of course, it would have to be a situation that would that would be added to the rulebook. It's currently not in there. And I thought it was an interesting proposal. Yeah, I mean, on its face, I really like the idea, and it seems like a really obvious sort of idea to me. The one hesitation I would have toward it is I would want to make sure there were sufficient situation questions written that asked about what was it said uh, in a reasonable, valid way, or both valid and reasonable way, such that it wouldn't be uh, too easy to understand what I was asking, like, like what is the material that I'm asking for when I offer and about what was it said? So for example, if there's only like, say three, uh, places in the material where I can ask and about what was said, uh, given the other questions that I'm asking for, the other material that I'm, or the other answers that I'm looking for, uh, you might be able to determine before I call the question where I'm actually referencing the situation, uh, from. So you can jump, uh, you can strategically jump on the formation of the first syllable of the first word of the quote. Um, maybe that's okay. I don't know. I mean, if you, if you've studied that hard and, and there is a, an interesting, situation that develops like that, maybe it's okay as long as you don't pre-jump, right? I mean, you're, you would, you'd have to time your, your jump very precisely and hope you also have a quiz master who is, uh, e equally precise in their reading of, of the questions so that you can time your jump precisely. But maybe that's okay. I don't know. Scott, what do you think? So I always, I never jumped on situations super competitively, but I always thought that there were two aspects to the question. One was, how the quotation starts, so how fast does it become key? This is just like any other question, right? You want to know how many other questions of this type can start the same way. But for situation questions, you also have the specific 
questions that are being asked of you. And to me, you kind of get to marry those two together and together they're just, they let you decide how fast you want to jump. So if I hear who said it, um, it doesn't give me a whole lot of extra information in addition to how the quotation starts. And so I might not really jump faster or slower. I would just want to jump um, based on the speed that I think is prudent on situation questions in general. But if I hear who said it, um, why was it said, and when was it said, well, there can't be that many with that um, those available situation questions. And so if I've studied and I know at least one of those quotations that it could be, and maybe it's only one, well, then I can jump very, very, very fast. Now, I think because I thought that way, it's one reason why I dislike situation questions as a question writer, because I feel a tremendous burden to be really, really, really good about the situation questions that I write. So if there's a good how or a how that the quizzer is going to expect, I need to write it. And I, I need to not just exclude the how portion if it's good because the quizzer is expecting it. And so if I write a who said it quotation and there's a really good how, well, in my head, a well-studied quizzer expects that quotation to be asked with the two questions, who said it and how is it said. And so I kind of feel similarly with with these. I think there's a, a pretty high burden for the question writer to write these well because, as you said, Griffin, if there's only a few of the about what was it said – um, that's going to be the basis for the quizzer to jump on if they can have that expectation that the question writer has done a good job. Now, I'm kind of curious about how this could be implemented because in the rules for a situation question, it says a direct quotation from scripture by a person or an entity. So that's um, how you decide if a quotation is even valid to begin with. So it says a person or an entity. So we're f- so we're fine if it was an entity and not a person that spoke something which would probably apply to, now these are Old Testament situations, but when, um, I think it's Balaam's donkey talks, or when the burning bush talks, like those would be considered entities, so the things that they say would be basises for a situation question. Um, and we would kind of, I guess, just ask who said it, even though it wasn't a who, which is kind of an awkward situation. But so in kind of that same vein, I'm wondering if just a slight change to the rule book saying about whom or what was it said, um, and then all questions are just written that way. So I just say, I need to know who said it and about whom or what was it said. And so it's not, it's kind of combining the about whom and about what, because there's so few about whom's. And I would guess that there are so few about what's, and it kind of just lumps them in together. It doesn't give, doesn't tell the quizzer which one specifically it is, but I think it still would allow for those about what's to be asked and not create a super, super limited, um, situation question. Yeah, I really like that. The trick is going to be is the trick is really going to be uh, with the question writers to ensure that they're always saying about what or whom was it said or about whom or what was it said, that kind of thing, always combining them like that, because it would be very, very easy to forget about that and drop one of the two of them. Definitely. And to give you some inside information, um, I guess it wasn't about the about whom's, but we can use the about whom's as a as the example. So there are times where in the, in the text it says, um, Jesus went to the Pharisees and talked to them about, and then it says the name of a person. And those sorts of situation questions are very obvious. Like who, about whom was it said? Well, the text used the word about, but then there are times where it's kind of implied where you knew maybe, um, 
Judas was just in the story and then someone was talking and it's very clearly about Judas, but the words are not like written in the text like this was said about Judas. Um, and so the question was posed to the rules committee of, are we fine with something like that, which is not explicit, but pretty clear, like writing about whom was it said? And we kind of made the decision that there's kind of all manner of explicitness all the way to very, very implied. And we we didn't want to either say it has to be explicit for it to be valid um, or saying the opposite, because we thought that there's almost no way to define something that is um, perfectly explicit or, you know, um, or that clear. And so we just kind of said, like, we, I think we refrained from writing anything in the rule book. So like many things about question writing, it's up to the question writer. And so the question writer would have to, I mean, there are many times in quizzing, you have to trust the question writer to do a good job, just like you're trusting the quiz master to do a good job. And so with about whom's, about what's, um, maybe they don't have to be 100% spelled out in the text, but if not, they should be pretty clear. So the quizzer isn't having to figure a lot of stuff out. And in the same vein, if you're writing them as a question writer, you should make sure to include the who about whom or what was it said, if that's you know the way that we go with things. And then you have to trust the quiz master to do the right thing and to always set, you know announce that situation question the same way, not give any indication about whether it's the who or the what. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's kind of an interesting balance because. As you as you experience quizzing, you will always find occurrences here and there of quizmaster or uh, a question writer being less good than you wish that they were. But it's pretty hard to write rules to make them the way that you want. You kind of have to lay out general guidelines and then just trust that people do a good job. Um, yeah. Yep, I totally agree. Completely agree. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can't write a rule book that's going to hit every edge case because then you're going to have a rule book that actually fails uh, more times than it succeeds. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, you basically you hit you hit a minimalist rule set. Uh, you maybe set up some additional guidelines and best practices, and then trust that your people uh, and I mean, not even your people, other people, <laughs> you just trust that people use their best judgment, and uh, we all just sort of strive for as good as we can get along the way. Absolutely. So we've got another question that came in via email. Aiden had a question about interrogatives, um, and he was wondering if you can ask a how many question on an interrogative. So I'm, I'm assuming it's, you know, don't say like what years, say how many years if it's yep. 50 Well, I, I love this question, and we were even just talking about something that might be useful for it. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, right? Surrounded by five covered colonnades. So could you ask how many covered colonnades? And I, the answer really is no right now, um, anyway. Yep, the answer is no, but I think it's it's incisive of Aiden to, to like ask this question because quizzing is a very verbatim sport. And we are dealing with written things, spoken things, and so grammar definitely comes into it. But there are many cases where a convention had to be decided upon in quizzing that kind of almost subverts grammar or ignores it. And this is a perfect question. You know, like, I'd never say, like, what years old are you? You know, you'd say, how many years old are you? Or how old are you? Um, and that's how we would talk in common English. But for clarity, quizzing questions aren't written that way. If you think about, I think it's in Peter, it says an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
Well, we write the multiple answer reference question, what joy? Well, you wouldn't ask it that way if you're talking to someone and just speaking a conversation to them. You would say, like, what kind of joy? Or, like, what are the qualities of joy that you're talking about? Um, but we just want to keep it as simple as possible and be inserting the least amount of words that aren't in the material because it keeps it much clearer for the quizzer. But it makes a lot of sense when you're studying as a quizzer to say, like, um, what's the most appropriate interrogative? And I think that's what Aiden's doing here, right? He's saying, like, what is not um, a really good way to write this interrogative question? But I think if he, if he, like, worked it all through, he'd say, well, obviously how many is better, which is what you can see. That's what he thinks. But it's not valid. And so I think what is the best one? It's better than who or when or why. But it's a helpful mindset to have as you go through questions because it's going to help you get into the head of question writers when you see like, oh, I think they might want to start this question with when or they might want to end it with why. Um, and I think it's just a helpful mindset to have. It's going to make your study better and it'll make you a better quizzer. Yeah. So in this case, you know, yeah, as awkward as it sounds, you would say what uh, covered colonnades? Well, there's the answer is five covered colonnades, even though it's that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Probably a more interesting question might be what colonnades? Uh, so then you could say, well, then and so, the, you know, uh, Scott, a question to you then uh, what colonnades? Is it covered colonnades or five covered colonnades? I would say the answer is five covered colonnades. Kind of want the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. Because you're saying in the context of 5-2, because colonnades is a unique word, uh, what are we talking about when we're talking about colonnades? Well, we're talking about five of them that are co that are covered. Um, and so right there, it's uh, five covered colonnades. And I think that's a, a straightforward answer. And someone might say, hey, could what colonnades be a multiple answer? Because there are two adjectives being brought into play then. And I'd say, no, like, it's really just one thing that we're talking about, even though there are two qualities and so it's not like, I mean, there's really no good way to invent a multiple answer here. You know, it would have to be like five colonnades and they were covered or something. And maybe then you could write what colonnades. Um, but I, I've had that question before when you say like, at dawn on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb. Like the women went to the tomb when? Well, there's two descriptors, at dawn and on the first day of the week. But when's asking for like when? And it was like a single time um, that they went to the tomb. Now, it was described in two ways, but I would write that as just a normal interrogative, and I think I'd write this as a normal interrogative. Yeah, I would as well. Okay. Well, we had a question uh, pop into the IQ at cbqz.org email address about CBQZ itself, uh, the application. A uh, coach wrote in and to ask, uh, is it possible, or actually I can pull up the exact question, is there a way to delete quizzes from the previously generated quizzes section? So in CBQZ, uh, you know, once you log in and you get your, you, well, once you get your account approved and you log in and you can create question sets and you can uh, either select a question set or, and select a material set or whatnot. And then you go into the quiz room area, you get an opportunity to set up how you want the quiz to be generated in terms of what chapters you, chapters you want, type distribution and so forth. And you hit generate and presto, now you've got your quiz. Well, as you're working your way through the quiz, um, let's say you get through question 20, then what do you do? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. You can just stop. You can, you can close your browser. You can move to some other, you can click back to the quiz generate page and just generate another quiz. But if you do any of those things, the quiz 
still exists, right? It's still in question number 20. And, and at any point, you can go back to the quiz and actually keep going, uh, in a sense. So let's say you're in the middle of a quiz and you are on question 15 and you decide to stop and start up another question, uh, another quiz. You can totally do that and then finish that quiz out and go back to your first quiz and start up right where you left off on question 15 and keep going to the end. Uh, CBQZ makes no judgment about when a quiz is done with until you tell it that the quiz is done. And there's a little, a little tiny button. It's in the, it's on the right side of the screen, kind of near the top. And it's the close button. Uh, and if you click close, you're telling CBQZ this quiz is over with. It is no longer a quiz that is active that, that I might come back to or something like that. You're specifically saying I, as the quiz master or the coach, say that this quiz is done, at which point the quiz no longer appears on the previously generated quizzes section of the quiz page, uh, when you're generate the, the quiz generation page. It does, however, still show up in the stats area. It'll show up in the stats area as a closed quiz. So as a, as a coach, you can always go, you know, after you've done, you know, a few days worth of practice or something, you can go over to the stats section and you can see all of your practice quizzes and you can see who jumped and, you know, what questions were asked and all this sort of data, uh, regarding how the, the practice went. Now, your, that data is not shared to anybody else. Only your account sees your practice data. So it's not like, you know, a coach from another team can kind of go, ooh, I, I see they they tend to be specializing in this particular question type, or they're strong in this chapter or weaker in this other chapter. None of that is, is uh, visible to anyone outside of just your user account. Uh, but those quizzes are there in sort of the stats area so that you can, uh, you can analyze them. If, however, you don't want them to be there for whatever reason, or let, let's say you do a practice uh, quiz, but you only get up to question number five, and you're like, yeah, I just want to delete even the, the reference to this quiz ever existing. In the stats area, you can still go th go to that quiz. Uh, well, actually, it's in the list view of all the quizzes. There'll be a little checkbox. Uh, checkbox is there for quizzes that have been closed that you can then check them off and then delete them. Uh, those don't exist for active quizzes. You can only close an active quiz from inside the actual quiz room of the quiz. Uh, and of course, it's easy to get back to that just by going back to the quiz generation page and then clicking on one of the links from the previously uh, previously generated quizzes and then click the little, uh, you know, tiny close button. It's kind of, it's just a little bit underneath the, the timer uh, in the upper right hand corner. And that's how it works. Now, there's there's a little bit of a difference that happens in CBQZ with official quizzes. So practice quizzes, anybody with an account, you know, a coach, an official, a quizzer, anybody, a parent can generate uh, practice quizzes. Uh, but only officials can generate official quizzes. And the difference, what's the difference between a practice quiz and an official quiz? Well, really not that much. The only difference is that official quizzes don't get deleted. Uh, they get saved and all the officials can view all of those practice quizzes, or sorry, all of the officials can view all of the official quizzes. Um, that's really the sort of the only difference between those two. Uh, generally speaking, you know, if you're a coach or a quizzer, don't worry about it. You're just going to be doing practice quizzes. Only you can see your own practice quizzes. Uh, you can leave them there, delete them uh, based on whatever your preference happens to be. And that's it. Awesome. And we're happy that people are using CBQZ and bringing these things to our attention. The other day I was using CBQZ and I was 
video chatting with Griffin and sharing my screen, and I did something. He's like, hey, do you know that there's a faster way that you can do this? And so by um, working on CBQZ with other people or asking questions, we learn how to use it more efficiently, and we can um, propose new features to CBQZ and just anything to make it a more useful and beneficial program for Bible quizzing. Yeah, and we very much would like to hear from anybody who is using the program, uh, you know, email us at iq at cbqz.org with your comments, questions, concerns, uh, any sort of future requests that you might want to have in there. If you spot any kind of bugs, I very, very much want to hear about those so that we can repair them uh, very quickly. So now we're going to talk about um, PNW individual and team scoring structures. And I'm going to start at a high level and then get a little bit more specific so that you can zone out whenever it gets too specific for you. Um, but for team, we've got five district meets and then one kind of district championships. And we have meets three, four, and five count for um, teams qualifying for district championships. And we kind of do it that way so the teams can kind of get into the swing of things. And then actually starting at meet three, however your team is registered, it has to stay that way for meets four and five. You can't move quizzers on or off your team. And between meets three, four, and five, they're weighted a little bit more um, the further you go into the year. So four is weighted more than three, and five is weighted more than four. And all that is designed to do is say, hey, um, if two teams performed equally well at meets three and four, and one performs a little bit better at meet five, we want to give that the most weight and allow that team to qualify for district championships. Um, so meets one and two, as far as teams go, don't count for their qualification to district championships, but we still have finals. We still have awards for the top three teams. Um, if you're the winning team, you get your name on the traveling trophy and all that. Um, but starting at meet three, that's when you can qualify for district championships as a team. <clears throat> and then district championships, however you do there, that's um, where you finish for the year. So meets three, four, and five. Um, are kind of wiped away once district championships starts. Now, for individual quizzers, it is it follows a lot of the same principles. So we have five district meets and we have district championships, and we want to reward quizzers that do well um, as the year goes on. So what the way that we do that is first off among meets one, two, and three. So all the meets count for quizzers, um, but among meets one, two, and three, whichever meet a quizzer does worst at, they just get to drop. So it's kind of it's kind of nice. You have three meets. Whichever one you do worst at, you get to drop. Maybe you can't make a meet. Um, we don't want to force you to take a zero into your average. And so you get to drop whichever one you do worst of in those first three. And then the remaining ones count for 10%. Um, so among the first three meets, in some, they count for only 20% or a fifth of your total average for the year. Uh, and then meets meet four counts a little bit more. And then meet five counts a little bit more. And then at, at the end of meet five is when we determine who has made Great West. And so those five meets are taken to an account, and then we take our top 20 quizzers, and then those are your Great West quizzers. But then uh, district championships counts for about a third, and it's after district championships that we determine the individuals that have made the internationals team. And so there are little things in there, like obviously if you're not on a team that if you're on a team that doesn't make district championships, you're going to have a hard time making internationals. Now we try to make the structure so that that would be very difficult to happen. So this year, we're going to have 15 teams qualify for district championships. And even though that's fewer than the 18 that have qualified in past years, it'll, it's, it'll be pretty hard for there to be a top five quizzer on a not top 15. <clears throat> um, but again, 
the structure's very similar to team. Like, um, we want to reward quizzers that do well later in the year. And I think that's helpful to know as a quizzer. If you get off to a slow start, it doesn't mean you're doomed if you're trying for Great Western Internationals. Um, it does mean you have to do well um, as the year goes on, but we would definitely reward you for that. So, like, take Meet 5. Um, it's weighted a lot. Um, it's weighted half as much as the first four meets combined. Um, so it's actually weighted a lot. And since ha- half of the quiz questions at a meet come from the new material, if you go to meet five and you've kind of done mediocre throughout the year, but you are awesome at the new material for meet five, you could score really well and zoom up the standings because um, half the questions are going to be from that new material and then your score for that meet counts a lot. So it's helpful to know these things uh, when you're if you're setting those sorts of ambitious goals like Great West Internationals, um, it'll help you as you work towards achieving those goals. Anything to add, Griffin, or shall we hit our two little miscellaneous topics? No, nothing to add for me on on how scoring works. That's uh, it's. I, I just want to sort of reinforce the – well, I guess maybe one thing. I just want to reiterate how important it is, the increasingly important it is over the year to – uh, memorize and stick with it. Uh, as the year progresses, uh, it, it is generally harder, I think, uh, for folks to continue to memorize. And so the scoring and the weighting is there to really, really benefit people who stick with the memorization practice of whatever they happen to be doing. And so if you can start the year, you know, as we're going into meet one here, just memorizing a few verses, but stick with it and then slowly progressively add to that number uh, towards the end of the year, you're going to be rewarded mightily because of the way the scoring structure works. Absolutely. Sorry, you weren't asking a question there, Griffin. You're just... Making yeah, a statement, I right? was well. Yeah, not yeah. so much a question, just sort of like yes, I <laughs> everything Scott said and plus plus points for what he said. And so that all that I talked about and like weightings, like it can sound very complicated, and you really don't have to care about it unless you really want to. Um, but if you are interested, you can talk to your coach and they'll help explain it to you or chat with me, and I'd be more than happy to explain it to you. Um, and if you're like a quizzer or a program, I mean, if you're a coach or a program leader and you think that there are things about the structure that can be improved upon, like, I, we would love to hear about that as well. There's not, there's almost nothing that's sacred and um, will, will, will remain untouched forever when it comes to the structure of uh, Bible quizzing. And so we're interested in ways that we can make the experience better for quizzers. Yeah, absolutely. Always evolving. <laughs> so we've got two miscellaneous topics, and they kind of came from um, actually conversations that I was having as I was editing quest- questions and um, kind of building out our question set for the first meet. And so my first question is, um, thinking about multiple answers, there are multiple answers that are what, like completely valid, and there are multiple answers that are completely invalid, but then there's also multiple answers all the way in between, right? There's kind of this big scale. And so some multiple answers you might have a lot of debate with with other people. Like, is it valid? Is it not? Um, similarly, some multiple answers are very, very clear. Um, they're clearly multiple answers. Some of them are very tricky. And so my question, Griffin, well, and then also um, some are types of multiple answers that you see super, super often. Um, and so... As a question writer, how do you balance like um, a multiple answer that is 100% valid, um, but you feel like it's really kind of tricky, versus a multiple answer that is 
kind of on the fence of being valid, but you think it's very clear or like most people would expect it to be a multiple answer. I hope yeah. I've explained it well. Yeah. So, I mean, between those two cases, obviously the, the easy thing is anything that's invalid is just immediately filtered. Um, and so what we're really talking about here is uh, what if the validity, what if the multiple answer that's written is right at the event horizon of the validity singularity? Um, then it's like, well, does what happens to it? Does it get sucked into the black hole or does it, you know, does it get swung around and ejected from orbit? Right. I mean, sorry, probably way too much going on in that analogy but anyway where where does it where does that that happen and where does it reside so generally speaking if something is valid but tricky i'm leaning towards including it as long as it's not as long as it's you know i guess i guess the sort of the the mode that i look at is at the end of the quiz if a quizzer comes up and i show them the question on the card and they see the material if they go oh i get it okay I see what's going on there. Then I'm okay with it uh, going in, even if it might be a little bit clunky or a little bit tricky in the asking of the question, maybe not quite so obvious. As long as it's valid and at the end of the quiz, if they're seeing the question and they're seeing the material and they're kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. It's a tricky question, but it's valid. Then I'm totally, I'm, I'm totally cool with it, including it there. If it's, if it's very clear and not at all tricky, and yet it's bordering on that, like it's getting really close to invalid, but it's not actually invalid, um, I would be completely okay with it. I think really it's it's sort of like, does it cross the event horizon? If it doesn't cross the event horizon, let it orbit, let it let it, let it it ride. Uh, if it crosses the event horizon, it gets sucked into the singularity and gets radiated out as x-rays. Yeah, I agree. And there are kind of these different aspects of a question being good that are being weighed by a question writer and we're always trying to write really good questions and the criteria that makes something really good is not objective criteria Um, and I find that it's very helpful to chat about questions I've written with other question writers um, how each of us defines good and really good questions because it's through those discussions that you get better at writing questions. And so that kind of leads nicely into the next, um, the second and last topic in our miscellaneous section. So we often serve multiple roles. So there's the role of a question writer, which happens before a meet. Then there's the role of a quiz master, which happens at the meet. So a question writer is trying to write questions that are both valid and good, testing the material, um, testing all bits of the material, using a lot of different question types, and all of that jazz. Then the meet starts. And the quiz master is up there asking questions that have been written. Maybe they're written by themselves, but maybe they're written by somebody else. It doesn't really matter at that point. So the quiz master is up there asking questions. And if at any point a question is found to be... So actually, let me define something. Whenever I talk about invalid, I kind of mean super invalid. Like a question is written as an interrogative, but it's obviously a multiple answer. So it's inter- it's invalid. I don't usually use invalid when a question is deemed to be tricky, even though a question that is tricky or misleading is under the invalid section. But because that's a lot more subjective, I tend to not talk about those questions as being invalid. I just say like, oh, they're, they're deemed to be tricky or misleading. So, so using my own definitions, if a question is looked at and deemed to be invalid by the answer judge or the quiz master, it just gets thrown out, you know, even at the meet, um, I mean, especially at the meet, it gets thrown out, right? 
But sometimes you write a question that's not that kind of invalid, but it's like maybe it's the multiple answer question and it's in that kind of gray area of is it a multiple answer or not. Um, maybe it's something that is a little bit tricky or requires a tiny bit of interpretation by the quizzer, but it's all in this kind of subjective realm. And so the, it's taken me a while to get to the question, but the question here is, um, as a quiz master, how do you view those sorts of questions in that tricky, misleading, requiring interpretation by the quizzer, um, multiple answer, kind of very judgmental realm, um, if they're, say, being challenged? You know, a quizzer thinks that they are invalid. Um, how readily do you, like, kind of what's your own bar for um, throwing out a question because you deem it to be invalid for one of those reasons? So you're asking if a question is technically valid, according to the rule book, apart from the section where you were talking about tricking and misleading, but if it's otherwise technically valid, but it is a little bit misleading, uh, and somebody challenges, if the question has gone through, I mean, it's, it's obviously if somebody's challenging, it's, it's going to be during a, a quiz meet. So then it's already gone through the, the being written phase, the vetting phase, the asked phase, and then the quizzer has jumped on it and then somehow didn't get the answer correct and is now challenging me counting them incorrect. And so that is that the question? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly be very interested in hearing their challenge. And I, I would be encouraging of an inquisitor feeling like they wanted to challenge to go ahead and do that. But they're going to have an they're going to have an awfully difficult time convincing me to change my mind. I mean, it would have to be something they would have to challenge me on something beyond just it was a tricky question right um it would have to be something where they could point to some other part of the rule where it it, a rule book where it was uh, invalid or maybe my pacing even the pacing is really hard to judge on but i mean it would have to be something beyond just it's a confusing question um now, there are times where, you know, as a quiz master, I'm looking at these questions before I ask them. I, I, you know, it happens very, very quickly, but a question will pop up and I will read it kind of quickly and I sort of a, in a sort of quick scan and go, does this seem to make sense? This does, does this look reasonable to me? You know, kind of stuff in terms of like the structure of the question and, and maybe how it's written. Uh, you know, the question type, does it sort of make sense? And, and there isn't really there, it, this happens so quickly. There's not a real analysis that goes on. It's more just sort of my gut feel of like, I don't know. It's, uh, it's sort of like the, the, the idea from the, the book blink where you just sort of, uh, if a question pops up and it, it, it you're just kind of like, ooh, that's weird. Why do why do I feel it's weird? And then I'll I'll stare at it for a little bit longer. And some uh, some quizzers will will notice this about me. Like there'll be a question that pops up and I will stare at it for like maybe five or ten seconds, and then I'll say like, oh okay, and then I'll just go ahead and ask ask the question. What's going on there is I'll see the question and I'll kind of be thinking to myself like, oh, I feel weird about this question. Why do I feel weird about this question? And I'll kind of study it for a few seconds and say like, is it, is it legal? Is it reasonable? Is it valid? Right. And if it passes those checks, even if it's weird to me, I'll be like, okay, great. I'm going to go ahead and answer, uh, ask the question and, and away we go. But if I'm looking at that question in that moment and it, and it, and it ends up being invalid, like I'm, I'm, I'm saying like, oh, wait, this is not a good question because of some legitimate rule book reason. I'll toss the question at that point, right? And so this kind of goes back to what you were talking about. There's sort of those three 
levels or three states of a question before the quizzer answers the question, right? It, it's, you know, the, the writing phase, the most important of all of them, right? Then there's the vetting phase where, you know, other quiz masters and other officials are looking through the question pool and looking for kind of weird questions and, and flagging them and that sort of thing. And then there's the, the asking of the question where the quiz master is taking a brief second to look at the question and then saying like, does it seem to make sense? Do I like it? Does it, does it, it's not like, like isn't the right word. It's not about my preference. It's about that sort of weird, I don't know, spidey sense of, of, of thinking, you know, do it, does it feel like an invalid question? If I feel like it is, then I'm going to stare at it a little bit more and just make sure that I'm comfortable with it or really, really know that there's a legitimate reason for it to be invalid. And then, so if a question passes all three of those checks, goes out there and a quizzer jumps on it and then gets it wrong and then challenges, like you're, you've got a fairly substantial wall to climb to sort of convince the officials to kind of drop the question at that point. Um, I don't know. Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, it is. And I just, I have a hard time thinking of how, of like, what do I think is the best way to handle this as a quiz master? Because I've long thought that the quiz master can't be expected to assess the quizzer's intent. So if a quizzer like messes up on a word that happens to take them out of context, well, um, it doesn't matter if they meant to or not, um, they went out of context. And but in but in this case, I almost want to like think I can know intent, right? Like there are case there are times where I'm almost positive without a shadow of a doubt that the quizzer didn't know the material well enough to be counted correct but thinks they can get it tossed out because it might be invalid. And if that's the scenario happening, I don't I don't want to accept that challenge ever. But I don't know if that's a proper mindset to have as a quiz master when I should really just have blinders on, not be thinking about the situation that happened at all, and decide, do I think this question is invalid by the criteria laid out in the rule book? Yeah, agreed. So it's kind of that. You know, there are times where you're like, well, they're probably trying to get, get off on a technicality. But if you do think the question is invalid, you should accept the challenge. <laughs> um, and it shouldn't really, you shouldn't, the scenario that it happened in shouldn't be part of your um, decision-making process. Yep, agreed. Well, I think that's all of our topics for this week. Yes, it is. Well, so with that, folks, we are going to close our episode here of the podcast. And we will see all of the, or I think nearly all of the quizzers in the Pacific Northwest uh, District tomorrow at EBC. But in the meantime, as always, if you have any questions, comments, and concerns, nagging doubts, fears, or paranoia, please email them to us at iq at cbqz.org. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you to all and uh, happy quizzing and great quizzing this coming weekend. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. I'm excited to see you all tomorrow. <laughs>